Hello, my name is Tyler Chisholm, and welcome to a special episode of Collisions YYC Current and Critical, a focus episode where I sit down with local leaders to discuss the topics of the day. A warm Friday, well, we're going to probably air this next week, but a warm Friday afternoon. Welcome to Mr. Nassim Bashar. Welcome to Collisions YYC. Nassim, how are you? I'm good. Thanks, Tyler. It's uh, great to be here. I'm looking forward to today. Thank you so much. Thanks for making the time. I mentioned everybody, we live, it, we live in a busy world, so I really appreciate when people give me the most valuable asset. One is their time, then their thoughts, so it, usually in that order. But you are the president and CEO at Williams Engineering Canada. So let's maybe start for anyone who hasn't had the opportunity, the privilege to know you guys or work with you. Tell us a little bit about Williams Engineering, and then we'll dive into our topic. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so so our, we're a Western Canadian engineering uh, firm, uh, primarily in the building space, and, and we we pretty well provide all, all disciplines that you'd normally see in a buildings engineering project, uh, right from the 60th parallel all the way, all the way up to the North Pole. Uh, we also have another company called Umbra Engineering, which we acquired uh, a couple of years ago, years ago which is in the um, uh, life safety uh, fire specialty space. Um, and we launched about 18 months ago our first technology company called DB Technologies, which is a partnership with a firm out of the U.S., uh, and is uh, connected to our model, which I'm sure that we'll uh, we'll get into here uh, as the, the podcast keep going keeps going. Okay, excellent. So, in terms of um, as a, this is, we've got a primary Alberta audience. Any projects that you guys, especially, I'm sure you're proud of all of them, but especially proud of that are recognizable in our province. Well, well, down by where you are is you know one of the my favorite projects. I started it when I was living in Calgary on my second run through because uh, I grew up in Calgary and then and then went back again for another ten years. Is the Talisman project now known as Repsol Place, where we took off that fabric roof on that uh, on that building down in the river and uh, on the Bow River, and it's a, a fantastic facility and a very very complex facility. And 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 because I was involved early days, even though the engineering was done by a lot of capable engineers other than me. It's uh, something to be really uh, proud about as Calgarians and both as, uh, as, as engineers as well. That's my, uh, that's my, go- that's my gym. So that's where I work out. So I'm yeah. very familiar yeah. with that facility and the complexity of the pools and the humidity and the structure itself and the, 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 the snow loading and some of the things I see them deal with it. I've always been curious, like the thinking behind that. So interesting to talk to the team who worked on it. That thing's very recognizable Calgary landmark. Mm-hmm. Um, Williams engineering, you guys, is it safe to say, I know you're in engineering, but you work very closely and you know dovetailed in with the construction sector. Is that a safe over, I'm, I'm oversimplifying a little bit for the sake of where we're headed with this conversation, but what really caught me and what drew my attention to you guys, specifically Williams and yourself, is I was attending an online AI machine learning conference and you were interviewed talking about some of the evolution and the you know emerging technology that you guys have brought into that sector. And notoriously, I've always heard and known from people in the sector how slow that world is to change or adapt or to bring in new things. And maybe we'll get a little hate mail from that statement, but I've heard that time and time again. And what jumped out for me was you on an AI conference talking about machine learning while simultaneously talking about the construction sector. So you got my attention. Well, I'm glad I did because it, 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 I think it's something that the industry uh, absolutely needs to, uh, both those industries actually, if you can combine them together, I guess they're one in, in terms of the uh, EAC space. But uh, I find that, uh, uh, that our industry, uh, like a lot of others, are, are not really recognizing, A, the opportunity and the threat actually that, that is heading in our collective uh, directions. And, and what I mean by threat is, I kind of see the world as as uh, disrupt yourself or be disrupted. And uh, think of Uber 
taking over the taxi industry happening to the engineering and construction space. Somebody walks into your neighborhood and says, I can remove friction in the way that you guys do work. You don't, you are no longer relevant. Um, it's a bit of a wake up uh, morning to have that uh, in front of you. And, and that disruption uh, is I think needed in, in this space in terms of how we uh, deliver projects ultimately to, to the, to the owners, whoever they may be. That's an interesting perspective to compare it. Like, you know, the, the old joke, you know, when's, when's Amazon your competition? Well, based on treating customers, what they should expect, arguably they're all of our competitors in, in one way or another, whether it's Amazon or Uber, this, this frictionless person, highly personalized environment that technology has facilitated. So for yourselves as a, as a, as a leadership team, is this something that's been on the agenda? Is this relatively new? Cause I, I also appreciate that in large organizations, change doesn't happen overnight. And you know, you and I joked offline, when people are involved, there's a lot of variables at stake. So maybe just curious from the overarching, when as a leadership team at Williams, you started to think about, wow, we need to do this more, or maybe I'm oversimplifying it. You guys have always been technology forward. It's just some of these new, maybe shinier ones like AI and ML that are starting to play a role. Yeah, certainly the machine learning and other aspects of it, um, you know, as a subset of AI is, has uh, come into place more recently in the last three years. But but for us, it restarted, I think, about five years ago. And it, roughly speaking, sort of 2015, you know, coming, you know, being in Alberta coming out of 2014, which is not a great year to be in Alberta, you know, oil and gas is heading to, 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 to the junk level again in terms of its value in the world. And as the price drops off, um, you, you start thinking about what the world might be in the future. And I, I tend to spend a, a lot of my time um, on strategy and thinking in the future. And I started to rethink a whole number of pieces of our company. And I'm going to, I guess, use the word, the innovation stack at Williams, which is, uh, which is collectively very different, I think, than, than others consider it. And we started to think about our purpose as a company, why we existed, uh, uh, what makes me get out of bed in the morning? What makes you swing your legs over the edge of the bed to get up and go do what you do? And was and was I aligned with all the engineers in the company? And uh, that's that was the foundation to it, which was, look, if we're all not aligned, then how are we actually going to perform in a tough economy? And it, to get that alignment, I, it needed uh, us to really think about our purpose as a company. And then that started leading to, uh, other uh, uh, sort of transformational topics of 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 the being that being the you know digitization of the of of the world around us the space around us and uh, and that led to one of my favorite topics which is around what do we do with the data set that we have as an organization is it leverageable um, can I do something more with it than we currently have uh, because without data you can actually can't really get any of this stuff done and that and that then finally led to to, to machine learning. So the stack uh, is is really evolved, and it's funny how these things go. Is you start off with purpose, which is sort of the social innovation layer, um, and then we move straight to technology and realize that uh, that along the way that data was the issue, and so we struggled with that for about a year and a half, um, and then realized that our biggest challenge really is is around our own behaviors, and uh, and that's the mindset conversation we were talking about, which is is that we can apply all the tech we want, but if our behaviors as a company and as individuals, as leadership, as engineers, is not going to change, the tech's not going to actually be functional at all. And so you have to convince the whole organization why you should go along for the ride. You imagine walking into the room, which I did about uh, three years ago, with I went on tour to all of our offices in the West, 
And I said, oh, by the way, 30% of what you do in five years will be obsolete. Um, we need to start thinking about data as an important function of, of how we operate our business, of data-first strategy, uh, because uh, uh, the machine's going to come along and take those tasks away from you because they're way better at math uh, than the rest of us are. And, and engineers are, are fundamentally built on math and science. Um, and the math is the easy part, and we have to good, get better at uh uh, at our emotional quotients, how, how how do we think? How do we behave? How do we relate? All the people stuff is is what's going to be the most important thing that the engineer is going to be left with. The communication stuff with uh, um, with our clients and with our people, uh, and and uh, being <laughs> being an engineer. Uh, my wife reminds me that I'm I'm high IQ and, and low EQ, and um, <laughs> and that's kind of. It kind of takes us in a new direction of things that we actually have to learn, especially when when the computer is going to start to take away the, your 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 IQ. In terms of, we don't need you for all of this anymore. What we really need you for is this big bucket of EQ stuff and a bunch of your IQ stuff at the same time. And uh, so you start to pivot your comp your company on in terms of um, what it is that we should get good at. And then so that's where the stack came back into play again, and we started looking at. Uh, our behavior stack, um, especially as we started to implement the machine learning components when people were saying, eh, I don't want to do that. Um, you need to really bring the people along uh, through that process and start to convince them, change their mindset that this is all good stuff and that they're safe. We're just going to evolve. That's all we're going to do. I really appreciate putting that, you know, because there's such an easy fear that I think comes up around, you know, the robot overlords are going to take our jobs and bringing it back to the point of like, well, no, 30% of your job is is going to change, but that's okay. We're here to elevate you on and include you in that journey. Because I think that nothing nothing stops change like fear in my in my personal experience. It, it, it freezes you, right? And that's not a good thing either. And, and it, when it comes down to getting everybody engaged in the, in the process, uh, it's... Yeah, there actually is a step in depending on which uh, transformation strategy you're following. But, you know, there's there's a whole bunch of steps about kind of trying to convince it you know, to your point about change management. There's a number of steps you have to take to bring people along. But there's also one particular step by uh, that uh, that's in that transformation process, which is uh, to basically fire the naysayers. And you, if you can't get everybody to go along, then and if you can't, convince them why and, and they're more a, a won't rather than a can't then um then it's time to change horses that's I, I i do appreciate and do you do you have like just how much of your organization changed throughout that process like did you know was it 10 15 percent do you like how many people weren't able to kind of get on board with the new because they chose they chose not to they kind of self-selected in that way i know this may be a tough thing to talk about but i think that that is that is reality like for yourselves going through that transformation transformation thinking of a company listening in going wow i'm kind of scared to go down that road because this thing might happen uh, do you have any kind of optics around like what what was that impact from a from a from a percentage perspective on, on your team? It was very, very small percentage of people who actually were won't. The rest of them, I think that we really spend a long time just trying to bring them along. And, and it's, it's um, it, it, you know how you have to transmit um, information or ideas, you know, you know, six, seven, eight times sometimes in order to get it to stick. There was a lot of prove it involved in this in this process, and we, I mean, our people are good people, and you know, our engineers are awesome engineers. You can't uh, you just because they don't really uh, uh, or can't understand at this point. If they can't understand, it's likely my problem, not theirs. 
And, and so maybe we need to come out about it in a different way. And, and sometimes you just have to prove it, right? I mean, they're engineers, right? So they're going to say, prove it, show me the math, you know, or whatever signal they need. And so we spent, um, this is why this process takes so long. And we have one of our offices, for example, in British Columbia, it took two and a half years to adopt a process. And even though it was a good process that was going to save them time and energy. And finally, at that point, it had to be said, look, sorry about your luck, but you need to start this today. Um, otherwise, we have to talk about next steps. And so two and a half years is a long time to for an organi- part of an organization not to to adapt to, in this case, to, to a new process. But um, but you get to those points. And so we're, we've been very patient with it, knowing knowing how hard it is. And I also have to say that, you know, it takes it takes a lot of energy and time to collect the, the data, the information you need um, to, to make these things actually go, especially around machine learning. And if it, it, it you know, we weren't a data first company. We're a 40 year old plus company who's who's trying to claw itself to the top into the data world. It's not like we're a, a technology company right out of the box born five years ago that's been doing it from the very beginning. We've, we had a lot to learn to, to get to that point. That's interesting. I appreciate you saying that because I, th- I remember, I think we all remember the covers of the Harvard Business Reviews a few years ago, big data, big data. And then all of a sudden quickly that cover changed and now it's AI and machine learning. But I talked to anyone in that space, they're like, it still comes back to the data. The data is the crux of everything that's going to facilitate that. So for you guys, you mentioned a year and a half of kind of, you know, looking at your data. Was that more of kind of getting it organized in a way that you could mine it and use it? Or was it also maybe in combination of like, what do we even have here? Like there's that, oh, if we have all the data, the questions will be obvious, but I've talked to data scientists, and that's not always the case. Like, what can we actually start to glean from a predictions perspective because of that data? What was that process like for you guys in terms of like almost data navel gazing, if you will? Yeah, so you you sit down with a with with a room full of di- data scientists and nuclear physicists and all the rest of these are super smart people, and they kind of look at you in the eye and they say, "This is total crap. Um, we we there isn't." There isn't enough here to do, so so they got to go do a whole bunch of data work. You know, the good news is is that as we as we talk to our partners on the machine learning side of things, is is we're really no different than anybody, other than we're we're farther ahead than than those that have come lately, and uh, and so that is you know still fundamentally the you know the biggest uh, challenge is is to uh, sort that out. But then it, it also then becomes a, a little bit later on becomes a people problem again because. As you try to shift to date being a data first company, uh, the you, you have all these other ideas about what kind of data you should be collecting, and putting that process in place in a uh, in a in a widely disparate organization like ours is is uh, it's really tough because a you don't know quite what you want yet, um, and so so we started off just trying to collect everything as as ideas came along, but you got to change process so. Even to use the um, uh, the Amazon example, you know they they maybe X number of years ago they had one data point, um, which is when you put the um, push the buy button, and then they had another data point, which is when UPS came to pick it up, and then they had another data point when it showed up at your door. Um, everything in between is all new stuff that's happened kind of along the way, and and. A lot of our um, in, uh, our thinking has actually been formed by companies like Amazon. The B to C space is where you got to go look, because that leads to massive uh, customer experience, which is what everybody's looking at, whether you're in the engineering space 
or uh, in the in the parcel delivery space or in the buying a, you know a product space. Everybody loves that experience of the transportation of that item from Shanghai to your to your front door and watching how it goes along the way because it reassures you that that money that you just spent on that new Mac uh, MacBook is actually on its way because you can't wait, right? You just cannot wait for that thing to come and open up the box and and um, uh, go play with you know the new toy or the or the new set of ski mitts you got or whatever it is. It's that is and that's so that to me that's the, the where one of our pivots occurred is, is is that it really turned into not just a data gathering exercise, but how do we actually convert that. Uh, into a long-term strategy about pumping up our client experience because that's the win at the end of the day. That's interesting. Would you say prior to this, and have you become more customer-centric through this process? Because that is ultimately the output of all this from when you were before, like back to the cultural shift. You just used AI to help do it. Yeah, that's it. So so to be clear, the AI actually hasn't done that for us yet because it's not connected to that part of our systems. But but being being focused on um, our uh, client experience, and so we put in a net promoter score. Uh, we went through a marketing strategy the same five years ago, and our net promoter score at the time was zero, and today we're sixty five. And so that's a big big change. Uh, a we didn't have a process to measure whether our clients were happy or not. Like knowing that's good information. Uh, and going from zero to 65 is really, really hard. And then going, you know, what we're trying to do in the next couple of years is how do you, how do you actually build platform to go from 65, let's say to 70 or even higher than that? That last mile is super, super tough. And that takes more, even more data uh, to, to make uh, your customers happy enough that they're going to reach you higher than anybody else in your space that just takes a phenomenal amount of data along the way to be able to actually make that happen. And that takes process. Uh, if you can't measure that particular point in time when the parcel left Shanghai and, and all the spots in between, as an example, I mean, now translate to the engineering, that to the engineering space, you're just simply not going to improve that process. So interesting. <laughs> Many did you have, did you have many false positives? And I say false positive in the sense that like okay, I think I think we've got something here. But then you go a little bit farther and like no, that's not quite it yet. Has it been that type of a process? Because it sounds like I like what you said. You clarified well, AI is not really doing it yet. But it sounds like the process of diving down the data, AI, and technology road just that alone has changed your culture. Like it's it's interesting how the two things have one created the outcome, even though it's actually not the hero yet. Is what I'm hearing. <laughs> It totally is. And, you know, and we had no idea what direction we were going on. I, th- I would say we we're stumbling around the dark for about a year and a half or two <laughs> years until we kind of, you know, figured some things out and realized that uh, the, the direction was the right direction. Some of that actually benefit, quite frankly, came about, uh, it was last year or two years ago, I went down to Singularity University in California and and learned about the technology that uh, is coming and available. So it kind of gives you this 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 sort of big future um, this this um, crystal ball to look into, which you can't quite touch, you know, on the inside, and and it gives you some ideas about where you can possibly go with these ideas, and it gave some certainty to the strategy. In fact, I finished our strategic plan, uh, and then I went to Singularity, and then Singularity basically affirmed that I was totally going in the right direction, and it's time to spend even more money on the direction we're going because. For me, I'm not a you know I'm just kind of discovering this road uh, for myself, and you kind of want to know whether I should keep on spending money or not, 
Um, or should I just carry on being and doing what we normally have done and get left behind? I mean, from a governance perspective, you want some certainty that the the bucks you're spending are going to achieve returns. And, and oh, by the way, those returns might not show up for three years, four years, five years. I mean, you remember Amazon didn't make money until when? Three years ago, four years ago? It was and 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 and, 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 th- and then make money. D- he did, <laughs> and he did. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure, yeah, absolutely did. As you say, there's a lot of uncertainty in that process, and so uh, if you're predicting the future, looking in the crystal ball, and uh, and you're going to make a bet, a big bet. Um, how certain are you about that bet? Because nobody's ever done this before, right? And and that is kind of a grip. You know, hang on to the seat. Uh, it's going to be a hell of a ride. Uh, let's bet the company again kind of thing. And uh, I would just, in some ways, I guess for your, your uh, listeners in Calgary, they'll understand that, you know, Calgarians, I think are, are super entrepreneurs like they are, I think in Edmonton as well. But, you know, it's, there's a lots of people in Calgary that for decades have bet the company year after year after year to, to, to make up some pretty good um, mileage on where they want to go. And, and that's a bit of the sort of cowboy attitude I think you need to have, right? Well, yeah, it's part pioneer, part entrepreneur, part maverick, part, part, you know, there's a bunch of things all thrown, I think, into that formula. So curious, from the investment perspective, you guys are privately, you guys are privately owned. How was that? How was that sell? You're standing in front of the board. I'm, 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 I'm painting this elaborate picture in my mind. You're, you're coming back with these maverick ideas about, well, this is the way we've done it, but guys, let me, guys and gals, let me tell you about the future and what we need to do to get there. How was that sell? Because I'm sure there's a lot of leaders mid-level and up that are looking to make these changes. And maybe they're struggling or maybe they're fear, fearful about getting that buy-in from the people that get to like, sign, say yes to the check. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, I've had this conversation with our machine learning partners and, you know, and um, we got together in, in, uh, in my office, which we call the, not my office, but next to my office, which we call the living room because it's laid out like a living room. And, and the CEO of um, AltML came in, co-CEO of AltML came in and we sat down. We had met each other just once or twice before. We talked about our ideas. We shook hands and we said we're writing a check. Uh, versus, so so we have a board, but it's a management board. Um, but okay. but, and then and then, and Corey will tell you. Corey Jansen, as I'm talking about, is Corey will say, you know, I'm the first guy that shook his head the right way and and um, and and wrote the check and we just went. Now now it was a little interesting afterwards when my CFO said, "You did what? Um, <laughs> Forgiveness or permission to see him? That's what I'm hearing here." <laughs> But it is, but because and I think that's part of that, that what, you know, the roadblocks that get in the way is, is that, uh, and this is the interesting thing about governance, because I do a lot of corporate governance work as well. I chair the Edmonton Airport Board and I chair Innovate Edmonton now uh, as well. Oh. And um, when you make, um, uh, when you were to, if you present those kinds of ideas to a board uh, and you're trying to build an agile company, but yet your, your board is kind of stuck in uh, sort of traditional mode, sort of tied up, you know, ties and, and suits and, uh, mm-hmm. um, and those kinds of things. Governance is not meant to be agile and it needs to learn how to do that. But agile governance is, a, I think, is a key part to that. And our, my experience at, at, uh, with our um, airport management team is, is um, they're, they're highly just, um, disruptive in, in, in their space in terms of what it is they're doing. And we had to give them room uh, to, to achieve their strategy. And, 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 and so I think it comes from 
explaining. So I didn't have to do that in my company, but I've seen it certainly at, in other companies uh, that um, have been involved with from the governance perspective. Your management team, I think, really needs to come uh, to um, the board with a phased strategy. Um, they need to educate the board a lot about, about what are the opportunities look like. Um, they need to go reasonably slow in the beginning and show success. They have to build capacity both at the board table and the management table and with the, with their with their teammates and they have to build confidence uh, de-risk de- de- proof of concept all those kind of those stages it's almost like the buyer journey if you're just getting to buy in kind of one 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 step at a time do you see yeah. like I'm curious about the impact obviously you d- you talked about 2014 you talked about some of the fundamental shifts you know structural changes we've had in our economy in Alberta due to changes in oil and gas do you feel that that has that motivated or there's an old adage, well, we're doing great. Why would we change anything? But the last five years, yeah. a lot of companies have been struggling. Do you feel that's facilitating? Like, is, is that helping us? Well, are we getting a kick in the pants to make some of these changes that maybe we wouldn't have been able, we wouldn't have been as quick to make when we we're, when it was, th- things were good? <laughs> yeah. So as I said earlier, I grew up in Calgary and, you know, my, my first experience was uh, with, with economies changing is, you know, when my dad was losing his business, he was in the home building business. And you go through five recessions and you and, and you always see oil and gas coming back again. And Calgary is a huge, obviously, oil and gas town. And uh, then I moved to Edmonton and you know, go to university, a bunch of other things. But you, if you go through enough cycles and, and uh, you kind of expect that, um, that things will get better again. And um, this is one that didn't, right? And, and it for <laughs> sure it didn't. And then COVID comes along and, uh, and, and, and whacks us again in terms of um, – of our, um, I guess, our belief or our strength in believing that things are going to get better. But we're going through a fundamental shift, and that fundamental shift is is built right from the social structures of, of, uh, uh, of the demographics around us. Um, they, they, there's an energy transition that is going on, mm-hmm. and now there's a digital transformation that's going on as we head into the fourth industrial revolution. And uh, this is the beginning of the end, if you will, of the way that we used to do things. I think back in 2014, at least mm-hmm. from my perspective, everybody thought it was going to come back and it didn't. And then COVID now comes in as this accelerant. I see it, COVID as an accelerant of technology. And we're seeing the adoption of technology at a, at, a, at a massive pace. You saw that in the NASDAQ, for example, in terms of investments that were piling into uh, yes. uh, to, to companies listed on the NASDAQ. And uh Beyond the normal sort of Amazons and Apples and Facebooks and you know those kinds of folks, the, the money that's piling in there is substantial. That's why you've got two trillion dollar companies now, right? And uh, so, I think that there is some uh, realization that is that it's likely not going to go back the way it was before. Um, this is the first time ever, you know, since the '80s when I you know left high school, um, that it it's not going to come back the way it did before. And so it's kind of a get ready. The demographics are also massively changing. And if you look at, I was in Berlin last year and looked at uh, talk, talking to developers in, in Berlin about how they develop in Europe, specifically for the tech industry and, and others as well. And their approach to things are changing uh, massively because of the macroeconomics um, in behind how the world is, is changing around us. Right. And you look, the electorate, uh, 50% of the electorates are millennials and younger. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the boomers that are making decisions anymore. It's uh, 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 they're the ones that are electing the politicians. Uh, Policy is not changing. It's getting harder. Uh, lots. The world is just massively changing uh, because of demographics and because of technology. 
And in a lot of ways, I think we're going to, um, I think we're going to be better off because if you, if you're a Peter Diamandis fan and you believe in uh, abundance, um, then, then eventually we will actually tech our way out of some of our big problems that we, we can't get ourselves through today. Um, and that will be a good thing. It's a matter of what the, the, um, how littered the path will be with, with uh, destruction and disruption and, and all the baggage that comes with that, right? Yeah, I've read some of the, the blue sky or some of the futurists thinking of like, there's going to be some casualties, but where we're headed is better than today. It's that gap in between that you'd get the kind of a bit of a question mark. It's a bit of an unknown in terms of how we go along. Speaking to your industry, like we're going to lump construction engineering for the sake of this. Are you seeing new startups, new disruption coming in on the back of technology? Or are you seeing the larger players, even on a global or even North American scale, going, hey, we're going to get disrupted if we don't make a change? Like That feels that there's a bit of a barrier to entry, especially in the construction space, where you've either got the experience to build the thing you don't, even though you might have all this new shiny tech. Just curious how volatile or vulnerable do you think your industry is or not to external disruption? Or is it about people that are already in it stepping... like? getting an unfair advantage almost because of the way they are adapting and using tech. I'm kind of of, of different thoughts, I guess, you know, what I, what I read about and, and uh, a lot, I read a lot about, about this particular topic. And uh, there are some large, large companies I think are, are starting to do some fantastic things. My guess is that their challenges is, is that this is no different than ours. If, if, I mean, if you've got a 20 or 30,000 person construction company and you're going to try to convince them to, do something different. It's quite a big uh, task, shall we say, to get past mindset. You know, and if I'm having trouble with under 200 people, then what's 20, 30,000 people trying to do? And uh, it, it, they, they just don't, uh, the people just don't want to believe or can't believe yet, or maybe they haven't seen enough evidence uh, for, uh, for them to believe. So I think that they, I think there's a lot of companies poking around. I think there's a lot of companies that have their heads in the sand. Um, you know, as I said earlier, I got off a call this morning and, and uh, you know, the conversation was actually a very bright conversation in terms of, I think they went about it the right way, which is the same thing that we're doing is, is in your business model, you, you kind of need to, to get out of um, the space that you're in and set up something separate, you know, over here in the corner that, you know, it's kind of like the garage or the lab or whatever you want to call it that goes off and, uh, takes you know a ton of entrepreneurial spirit and a bunch of tech and a couple of buckets of money and send them off to go um, in a particular direction because you know if the size of company we are I've even said it a few times internally that sometimes we act like a wet blanket on new ideas because we're just not built to make those changes and that's a you know under two hundred people twenty thousand people oh my I don't I have no idea how they actually you know, <laughs> would, would get get past it and especially. You know, like sort of getting back to this, you know, the story about Corey Jansen coming into my office mm-hmm. and us writing a check next week. Um, what does that look like at a public company? Uh, it, it doesn't happen that way, right? There's so much process and governance and everything else that gets in the way. And, you know, so there's a few more Vegas rules in Williams than there are at, uh, at the larger companies. But I think the needle's moving. It's starting to move. I think that COVID is is starting to get uh, uh, back to acceleration. I think people are saying, you know, kind of, holy cow, here it comes. Um, and uh, we'll see more of it, I think. W- one of the big things I'd like to get going uh, here in Edmonton and then in other places as well with uh, with this 
this innovation um, entity I'm building for the city of Edmonton is actually to build a cluster around innovation and construction and engineering and, and no different than you would around health or, or around AI mm-hmm. or anything like that. Because I think that there are, there are lessons that all industries can learn from the tech industry on how to actually accelerate change, create products, um, build, uh, build new things. Because that's a big part of our business model today is not only are we changing um, how we do things, but and this is sort of gets into the machine learning side of things for us. You know, finally, is it now that we've actually learned how to do that? We want to spin it off and we're going to stuff it into another company where it can behave on its own. And so our business model, uh, or in other words, what the what we do, we know why we do things, we know how we do things, but what we do is changing to the point where at some point we will be in the product business. And hopefully that's that's next year, as I was saying in that uh, uh, that other um, show you're watching on AI, just recently, AI recently. So the business model, ours is a circular business model. I'm waving my hands for the people I can't see, but it's <laughs> these circles uh, that sort of go out uh, from the purpose of the center to uh, to the, what we do on the outside. Mm-hmm. That's changing, and that's a that's a big part of transformation. Uh, digital transformation is not about doing things differently; it's about doing different things. And and that is that's a good that's, this, a, good, that's a good clarifying it, statement. <laughs> it's very very different, right, than that, and it means your jobs change and and. Uh, um, and I, I borrowed that from somebody, and I have I have no idea where I borrowed it from. So so. Um, Copyright kudos to somebody who first said that, but that I really believe that you have to change uh, what you do because these old things that we are currently doing are just going to slowly transition themselves away to something less, right? And so if 30% of our engineering work disappears, then what else are we going to do, right? So what we mm-hmm. do is a big part of that. Well, the, oppor- the and- opportunity is what do you do with that 30%? Like you've got 30% of time back to invest in a different area and, and create value for your customers in a different way. If you look at it that way, it's very exciting versus 30% of you are going home. That's like, those are two very different storylines. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or, or what you do with that 30% is actually you build up on your other skill sets, your soft skill sets. So the so it's an example of that is, is the probability of a nurse being out of business in 2035 is zero or close to zero. <laughs> and why is that? It's because is they have a high degree of empathy. Uh, they're very, very, very focused on patient care, obviously. Uh, they do a lot of really interesting things that don't have anything most days got to do with math. Yeah, they're measuring how much goes into the the needle and, and all the other things mm-hmm. that they're doing. But that patient care side of things is something you can't teach a robot to do, at least not yet. Um, so the but the probability of a taxi driver or a truck driver going out of business is extremely high. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the engineers are somewhere in between there. I don't know what the exact number is today. It's kind of like 0.8 or 0.86 or 0.75, or I don't know what that is actually today, but it's in that, in that park. And um, so, so it's learning all these new skill sets that we actually didn't get into engineering uh, school to begin with for that we have to learn in order to survive in a world where the most important thing is how you communicate your engineering ideas and not so much about doing the math behind the engineering. So you end up with this big shift that occurs in terms of the training and educating of engineers and what it is they fundamentally do during the day. So that other 30% could be made up of, of highly competent, high EQ, high IQ people on the delivery communication side of things. Cause that stuff is really hard to replicate. You just can't replicate that. That's the value. So when you're thinking about 
you're looking to hire a, someone comes out of school. I've got my engineering. I've got everything technical and paper that I should need to come work at your organization. Are they getting that training yet? Like has the school system caught up? And I talk to different different bubbles, whether it's Bow Valley or SAID or what's happening at Mount Royal and how they're trying to pivot and almost catch up with the demands of the market and work their way back. Has has the engineering school system made that shift yet? Are you seeing new new people coming in with those skills you just talked about? I have the fortunate of, uh, of responsibility of being a father and uh, the father of three children, but one of them is an engineering school and second year engineering. Okay. And so um, I also see the courses that she's taking. And so this is the, this is my radical feminist engineer, which we need more of in terms of the engineering space. That's and awesome. um, they you know, they're taking a lot of the uh, sort of basic courses, a few more basic courses uh, than they, uh, than I did, let's say, when I was in engineering school, but it's still not um, attractive enough for them. In term, you know, they don't see the ultimate use of it. And so that's one of our many conversations is this this finance for engineers is really, really important course. Pay attention to that. Um, working uh, with people, uh, project management skill sets, um, all those things are really important um, for her as she's learning because um those are again the softer skill sets, even the finance skill sets that they need. Um, they, I don't think they've caught up. You know, in, in my mind, I think that the best thing that could possibly happen, and, and maybe the, some of the engineering deans out there will maybe won't like me, or maybe they'll appreciate this. I'm not sure, <laughs> but I think we should tack on a year of humanities to all engineering schools, and they should learn about arts. They should learn about um, behaviors. They should learn psychology. They should learn theology. They should learn. Um, all kinds of things that actually round them out a bit more uh, than they are. And right now, because right now it's up to us. And I would rather they stayed in school for next year and spend the actual 15 grand or whatever it is to make that happen um, so that we end up with more engineers that have a rounded off IQ and EQ together to to make them more effective uh, when they come work for us or Suncor or whoever they end up working for, right? To me, that is where the magic is. And just to top off on that is I, I did a panel last year um, at a business school and, um, and there were five, you know, four or five CEOs on the panel. And somebody had asked the question, if you were to go back to school, uh, what would you take? You know, so engineer, accountant, um, almost engineer, all of us were CEOs, right? Every single one of us said psychology. As, as the most important thing that we need the most, because we're working with people all day long. We need to understand human dynamics and human behaviors and what makes them tick because we can't just go off and create new policy, process, you know, tools, all kinds of stuff and you know, write strategies and, and all these things without actually capturing the, the hearts and the minds uh, of our people to go along with it. And, and if you're primarily trained uh, trained as a as a numbers person, mm-hmm. that stuff is not necessarily part of your uh, your DNA, and it's stuff you need to learn. It took it took me fifty years to learn it, and you know I'm over <laughs> fifty now. But that. 
it's such an interesting shift when you think about, you know, we've been so good at valuing what we can quantify. So, you know, that left, you know, just oversimplify that left brain thinking, the linear, the numbers, the, the ability to accomplish that. And those other skills sometimes got almost relegated to less valuable because, well, they're a little, you know, they're soft skills. We can't really measure them. And, but you certainly know the difference when you deal with someone who has them and how much more you want to engage with them or how much easier it is to understand or buy into their idea. But it's interesting. I think that's, I agree with you fundamentally. And I also see that as a fundamental shift because it's so much harder to grade that and measure that. And which is what we've loved to do. We, we want to quantify it and give it a grade, you know, how empathetic you are, how resourceful you are. Like it just seems like we've got a, it feels like there's a different set of filters that we need to put on because we, if we're going to start measuring that as an output, like you say, what get measured, what gets measured gets done. That's an interesting one. And very much a shift from the traditional left brain, more, you know, STEM style thinking. It's, it's absolutely necessary. I think it actually ends up re- reducing the friction in organizations. It actually makes us more competent. And quite frankly, I think it makes us more profitable. And if you have all that stuff right, and, and, and if you teach it and nobody else is teaching it, now you have a differentiator that nobody can copy from you, right? And so that is, and that's hard work. And so it's a bit of you know, our philosophy going forward is we're working on hard stuff because everybody can replicate the easy stuff. We're going to get the hard stuff done and it's going to take us five years. Again, the Amazon approach, right? Take us five years to be profitable on this kind of stuff. I mean, we still, we're a profitable company today, but we're diverting all the money we can, I think, into into the development of of, uh, ourselves and to a certain extent um, and in our technology. Um, Because then it's going to be a catch me if you can kind of situation that's applicable Mm -hmm. to anywhere else. And to me, that is, is, it hurts uh, you know, you're not taking home a bonus. I'd rather be, uh, you know, I'd rather be uh, farther ahead five years from now um, with a highly productive company that is finding a way to to be able to take that profitability and give it back to the community in some way, uh, which is core to our purpose, actually. Um, and is I'd rather be doing that uh, a little bit farther down the road than 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 being short term thinking about uh, about something which is you know to make quarterly dividends and sort of back to your other question. I think that reminds me that that's the problem with, with, with public companies is they got to make the quarter, got to make the quarter, got to make the quarter. And that distracts you from necessarily the investment, right? And you saw again, back to using Amazon, an example, what's Amazon today, three, 3,000 bucks a share. And where was it not that long ago? Right. And, and for many, 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 many months, you know, that leadership team was taking it on the chin. No, someone just dropped off at my uh, Invent and Wander. The collected writings of Jeff Bezos just got dropped off by a friend at my house today. So it's on my list to read. And I understand from a friend that significant amount of the original shareholder letters that were in there and the philosophy about like come oh, cool. almost like, yeah. believe me, it's going to come down the road. So yeah, it just got dropped off. I haven't even looked at it. I have a friend who's read all of the investor letters over the years. He's always quoting and talking about that, you know, infinite versus finite mindset. And when you're doing quarter by quarter, it's really hard to have an infinite mindset. Those things fundamentally conflict with each other. They do. And it works into a space of governance as well as because your CEO is, is, uh, and your leadership team are getting, uh, their short-term incentives, long-term incentives based on how they make in those quarters. And if you want to go out and buy the new boat, then are you going to risk the whole farm? Um, you know, for that kind, it doesn't incent that kind of long-term thinking. And I think there's ways to, to design around that to a certain extent, but long-term thinking is, is I think is where it's at, but investor patience isn't there. And that's a, I think a big benefit for private companies is you can, you can, 
you can stretch it a little bit farther than uh, uh, than you would ordinarily in, in let's say in a public company. Um, maybe somebody will disagree with me, but I, at least that's my experience so far. But you're the guy with the microphone right now, so we're good. <laughs> if they're disagreeing. That means they're that means they're listening. Now you said a, said a bunch of things today that are really resonating, and certainly coming circling around. The, the, I get this amazing privilege of talking to different guests from different perspectives. But that kind of almost outsourcing innovation and arguably getting out of the way and creating a pocket where it can happen that maybe isn't it isn't held back by the culture that has re, been required by the traditional organization to be successful. But it, it gets all over wet. You know, you use the word wet blanket. It can really wet blanket new ideas. But setting something off that innovation labs or disruption, or, you know, there's a bunch of different cool names for it, but you mentioned, you know, you guys setting up a, setting up a tech, a, a technology company separately. So many things I think are, are interesting tactics and strategy uh, tactics to support the strategy to allow innovation to not be impeded by the way we used to do it. Quote unquote. <laughs> yeah. And the performance tools are different too. And so how do you incent performance? I mean, if you think of, of, of the, for those that are in the tech space, they all know uh, you're not going to get a paycheck for a long period of time, and so you, yeah, so there's the the, the equity invest, right? Uh, sort of the equity vest, um, and so yeah, you got enough to be able to go and you know go to the movies on Saturday night. When did we used to be able to do that? But um, yeah, anymore, <laughs> yeah, the good old days. It's all, it's all Netflix, which by the way is more expensive this week than it was last, I think. But uh, <laughs> yeah, the the uh, but so so how you incent uh, a team that is you know, going all on a particular performance track to deliver on dividends um, versus one that is, is really trying to build growth and scale. Um, those are, those are, those are different incentives and those are different cats. Right? You know, I'm working on another project right now. Well, in another company where nobody's getting paid and it's all equity. And I have never seen it, seen a team work that hard before uh, for zero pay and, uh, and, and a whole bunch of, um, of trials and tribulations. I don't, I don't know if you, I'm trying to remember the name of that explorer that went to, uh, to um, the South pole. Amundsen, Amundsen, I think it is. Yes. Yeah. Read, yes. I know what you mean. You ever read his book, which, and the advertisement for it, which was not a great advertisement. It basically said to the, something to the effect of um, if you want to have a completely crappy time and maybe risk your life, uh, but want to have a great adventure, come along. Right. Um <laughs> And you're gonna, you're it. definitely going to attract a certain breed of individuals with a, with a, with a tagline like that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that a lot. Um, from your perspective, and you mentioned Singularity University, you mentioned some time over in Germany. Where, where do you look to for inspiration outside of our borders? Is there certain geographies, parts of the world where you're seeing, even in your sector or just technology in general, where you look to and go, you know, I got to keep an eye on what they're doing over there because they're moving ahead or they're less impeded by the way we used to do it. What's on, what's on your kind of watch list? Retail for sure. Uh, you look at look at mm. uh, environments that are massively disrupted already, um, and have been going through this process, and, and, and are accelerating that right now. I think that uh, watch out. I, I think for what's going to happen in the hotel business. Airbnb was eating their lunch for for quite a while, and they had to adapt um, in that space. Um, obviously, they um, they took a bit of a, a licking, I guess, in, through through COVID. I love retail to watch because it is. Is massively being disrupted, um, and, and it actually, I think, has uh, the data set uh, from which to make better decisions. Can you imagine all those those uh, things that we buy online today that we didn't used to? I mean, I, I mean, next week I'm doing some some things around the house. I've I've got I think six or seven packages coming from all over North America. Um, and um, and every one of them are, are being tracked, but that data set that they have about my buying preferences 
is gold to them. How do I get mm-hmm. that in my space? And 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 um, and know whether you're happy or not pretty quickly, and you'll be quite vocal about it if um, if you're not. And uh, so you'll be on Twitter in 14 seconds if if uh, Home Depot or Lamps R Us or whatever it is I'm buying this week or uh, um, if I'm not happy with the process, right? And uh, so they pay particular attention to that client experience. I think the next space I think to watch out for is is uh, being in the airport biz to a certain extent is airports and airlines are massively being disrupted right now. Mm-hmm. And I think watch out for that space. I look to them for inspiration being on the inside because they are um, they're doing such cool things for the for travelers uh, and and how that industry is potentially going to consolidate even more than it has and find ways to do revenue extraction from you along the way. Um, yes. from the data set that they uh, that they hopefully can control uh, or that are scrambling to control right because travel is hard especially if you're a business traveler if you're going to if you go to Hawaii on holidays yeah you kind of make it you get there you, you sit in the beach for a couple of weeks and you come back I guess is what happens but if you're traveling on business I mean I used to travel on business 150 days a, a year you're kind of done after the first couple of years of that and anything that gets in your way. <laughs> the novelty wears off quickly. <laughs> totally. That you're looking for um, ways to actually, you know, take some of the wear and tear off the, you know, the rubber chicken in that case, everything from hotels to trains, to ticketing, to um, uh, the pillows that you have, you know, to, to workouts that you should be getting that you're not finding time for because you're trying to jam everything into a one week trip to Singapore or to five days to Vancouver or wherever it is. There's a lot of things that uh, that industry, I think continue to can continue to do for you. That is going to make that um, less hard on you. That, that's of course, if zoom doesn't take over everything, which is, un- I was, totally was going to un- say, you, they're going to have to try extra hard to break the convenience of like, well, can't we just have a zoom meeting? So back to your, you know, the disruption that happened in the last, you know, eight to nine months. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, the world of business and the world of travel. I, I, I really love what you said. I've had this conversation in my in my other in my other life as a marketer, talking with companies and looking at. I said, you know, that back to that. When's Amazon your competitor? They're like, ah, oh, no chance. I said, the the need to understand that our custom that our all of our customers don't make an excuse for us and say, oh, but you're B two B, so I'm going to expect a different level of service from you. They don't because they just came off Amazon or Lamps.com buying whatever it is they needed to buy with a seamless experience. And then they go to your website and they can't even find your phone number. Like that is going to, that has impact. Do not undervalue it. And I think looking to the, the retail sector because of how much rich data they have and how fickle the customer can be, but they're just as fickle in B2B. They can go, they can go down the street or across the world now. There's no barriers. They're setting the example for what that experience should be in professional services or construction or anywhere. They have they have no idea why they can't just push one button and get what they want. We've trained people um, to get that. And so how do you line up, right? And there are, people are not going to accept those kinds of excuses anymore, especially when they're going to have the data set themselves that says, no, no, you weren't um, working for eight hours on my basement this week. I have this data set that says you said you were, but you weren't. Um, and you're late, um, or you know, they, all those things that happen in in, in the wonderful world of uh, of construction around uh, around the delivery of projects, right? And uh, the, there's a lot of things we have to learn, and it'll be all good for us too. I think ultimately uh, it, it will be, but there's going to be a little bit of pain along the way. 
No, I agree with you. It's going to be an uncomfortable transition, but if you think of personalization and transparency, which is what we all strive for, you know, if you don't provide that to your customers, your competitor will. Back to your point about you're going to, you either disrupt yourself or you're going to get it from, you're going to get the left hook when you, when you turn back from and then boom, your next thing. When did I know I was in trouble? When I, when I woke up on the mat. <laughs> well, yeah. And you're going to wake up on the mat and, and it's going to be on Twitter that, you know, that you're on the, you know, and everybody will know about it, right? Everyone will funder. know for you because you were unconscious right. while you were lying there. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you mentioned, LinkedIn too. I mean, in terms of the, uh, you know, the uh, sort of as a marketer, I think you know, the how do you actually get to clients um, or, or uh, new customers? Um, and so, how do you, you know, so so leading in thought leadership and and in and getting that inbound marketing coming into um, to your business as well as uh, um, actually doing a paddle on this in the next couple of weeks is uh, uh, also because it's part of our part of our strategy, which is. Um, uh, well, there's lots of pieces, I guess, to our strategy, but how do you actually leverage those digital tools? I was on a call yesterday with my team talking about how do we how do we do more of that when, yeah, early days of COVID, you can get somebody on a Zoom call and, you know, see if they want to buy some engineering from you. Um, but, you know, more lately, that's that's not as as uh, as good because we're all kind of tired of the Zoom calls. Uh, and so it's getting harder and harder, but they, so the clients, your customers still have needs um, and you can't go and meet them at the rubber chicken lunch or you can't go knock on their door because they yeah. won't let you in. Like, how do you actually connect um, in a, in a space where um, a lot of construction and engineering companies really aren't that different from each other in the space. And if all you can see is their webpage, then how do you stand out? Yeah, like, like what, why choose, this one over that one, right? And you know that that was one of our earlier experiences uh, on our measurement of our NPS score was our focus group said, "Yeah, you guys are good, kind of like everybody else." But yeah, it's not, ouch, it's not a very yeah. powerful sort of feeling, right? You know, it doesn't really get you to swing your legs over the bed again in the morning when hey, we're like everybody else. You know, it just no, but the, it doesn't feel but the good. deeper. No, it doesn't. But those deeper insights you're able to gather and really understand, like as you go into that data, how do you bring that not only until you how you deliver, but how do you bring it beyond? Like there's always that point. Once they're inside your ecosystem and you're delivering service, that's one side of it's kind of the infinite the the infinity symbol. The one side is that experience that they have, but everything else that goes around on the outside and how are you providing content? How are you putting relevant things out there that they're there to, to know what their problems are before they even have them? So I think it's such a valuable opportunity as a marketer. The more data you have and understand about your customer experience, the better equipped you are to put the right storyline out there and the right narrative that you're right. So they come to you because you, 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 you knock on their door physically or electronically, it gets annoying eventually to, to that potential customer. It does. And Singularity has a conversation with you about orbits. They call it orbits in terms of how do you connect with these sort of broader, think of a solar, I think of it as a solar system, right? If you've got these planets sort of circling all the way around you that go you know out farther and farther and you know, so how do you participate in those orbits? How do you connect to those orbits? How do you um, uh, make yourself known in, in, a, in a very, very large space? And uh, uh, especially when we're, you know, some days we're not allowed outside or we're certainly not allowed in the bar anymore, that's for sure. But um, the, the, how do you, that stuff is, is uh, I think, is, is solved uh, digitally, right? And, and, and that is um, things that we need to continue to work on because it's tough just getting harder and harder. 
It is, but you know, but the tools are more powerful. So it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. We've never had a better tool set to get in front of people digitally, but it still is a deep requirement to be providing value, or else you're still just being a nuisance <laughs> to, to oversimplify it. Exactly. It, we're I'll I'll phone you, you know, when I need marketing, or I'll phone you when I need engineering. Uh, I I know where to go. Like I it, like it like it just there's this thing called the internets, and I just go there and, and Google engineering, right? And 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 they start going down and I, the and, I, and I read the reviews that are by my peers, and I realize that there's somebody I know who uses you, and I call. Like, it's funny how it's new, but yet still old fashioned at the same time. It's just we're taking good reputations and word of mouth, and I know that they're going to do the right thing, and we've just now amplified it, you know, a hundredfold as as a you know that's that's not even close to what it is actually. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Nassim, I really appreciate one, your, your, your sharing and just openness of like, here's what we gone through. I don't think you gave away too much of the secret sauce. <laughs> I, I appreciate that <laughs> the honesty around like not just getting excited, go, oh, it was all the tech and it was all the data. And that's what really talking about the people side of it. And I think that's where I'm, I had a lot of people on the show and they, they, they get excited about a change, but then it gets stopped and it gets stalled out by by the people that maybe just don't have enough, you know, what's an objection is just, I don't have enough information yet. And maybe I'm a little bit scared, so I'm going to stop. So really leaning in on that and, and pushing it forward through your organization. I appreciate it. Um, what's the best way to get a hold of you? If someone is like curious to chat with you directly, or they're very curious about Williams and want to get involved and potentially go, Hey, you guys are doing some cool stuff. Maybe, maybe I want to come do some engineering, so do some engineering over there. What's the best way? Uh, well, best way is you know, LinkedIn. If if you if you if you don't get my email address, you can always e- email me uh, on my email address. And I don't know whether I send that to you or just say it now to you. But uh, that's why. Yeah, you can say it if you me. want, or we get we get, yeah. If you if you're willing to put that out there, absolutely, we can, we can share it. So feel yeah, feel free to share it. Yeah, it's nbashir at williamsengineering.com. dot um, And uh, uh, but LinkedIn is is obviously always works. It, it it sometimes takes me a while to get around that because I. I don't manage around LinkedIn as much as I should, but um, uh, but uh, email is always best for sure. I, I, I'm kind of old fashioned that way. Um, I'm not going to give out my cell phone number today because I, I I don't even want my kids having that number sometimes because they'll, they'll <laughs> over traffic. Very them. few guests give out a cell phone number. Every once in a while, <laughs> someone will drop it. I'm like, okay, well, that's bold on your part, but I, I, yeah. I appreciate it. You guys also have a great website that really showcases your your work and what you do and your philosophy, which I was checking out earlier today, WilliamsInEngineering.com. And I love throwing as much support as I can behind organizations, especially here in Alberta that are stepping out of this is the way we've always done it to do things different. And ultimately do things better. So kudos to you guys and your team for that. Yeah. Well, thanks very much. I know it's, uh, I'm glad you, you like it because we're going to change it. Uh, it's time for another change, but that's uh, lots. That's, no, that's, that's part of that's the, fair. part of keep, keeping it going, right? Always, always, always evolving. The same. Thank you so much for your time today. I uh, enjoy the rest of your, uh, your Friday afternoon. Thank you. You too, Tyler. Thanks for the opportunity. It's been great. My pleasure. Take care.